You are listening to Yo Teach, the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English, Episode 6, Part 1. Hey everybody, it's your host, Austin Hall here. As co-coordinator of publications here at ICTE, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Yo Teach podcast. The podcast is produced every month for your enjoyment, and notes from each episode can be found at the online home for ICTE, www.iowaenglishteachers.org. Be sure to check out the website for all things ICTE. You can also follow our organization on Twitter at ICTE underscore board and find us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. This month, I'm pleased to bring you a very special episode of the Teach podcast, the very first edition of YA Author Tag Team, a side project of the Teach podcast. In collaboration with my friend and fellow ICTE board member, Jenny Paulson, I look forward to bringing this exciting offshoot of Teach to you. The concept of the show is this. Jenny and I, two teacher friends, will turn on the mics and chat with two author friends for an extended conversation about reading, writing, teaching, books, friendship, and more. The idea is to give authors a platform to talk about their books and connect with you, our ICTE audience, and for listeners to have a chance to get to know their favorite YA authors just a little bit better. I know I speak for the both of us when I say that Jen and I couldn't be more excited to get this part of the podcast journey started. So sit back, plug in those earbuds, and enjoy. Round one of our YA author tag team match with YA heavyweights Andrew Smith and A.S. King. One of the things that I, I know for me as a, as a teacher that I admire about you is how you are managing to pump out these books with being a full-time educator. Uh, and so I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like what your process is or how you maintain your sanity, if you do, uh, as you're balancing those two things. Okay, well, um, gosh, I'll, let me talk about the process thing, first of all. And, um, and Amy knows this about me, too, and it's kind of one of my mottos is that I don't really have a lot of... Uh, I don't really have a lot of uh, tolerance for people who ask me, where do you get all the time? Because none of us has poverty nor riches when it comes to that particular resource of time. Um, and, um, and I do work really hard and I take what I do very seriously. So um, I wake up really early. Uh, I'll be waking up at 2.30 in the morning, tomorrow morning, so that I can get some stuff done. And then I go for a run and then I go into school. When I'm teaching, I will, uh, you know, during break time, I have, a, I have a pretty convenient schedule that gives me a half an hour break, then an hour break, then another hour break during the course of the day. So I have a lot of time where I can sit down and, and do some more work at school. And then I come home and uh, I, you know, and I make dinner for my family and then I go to bed and I wake up and I do it all over again. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as the second part of the question, the maintenance of one's sanity, uh, sometimes it gets stretched pretty thin, you know. Um, and like I said, I, I, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I, I work hard. <laughs> and uh, and uh, when rest time comes or fun time comes, I take my rest and my fun very seriously. Because, again, I know, I know 
I know what expense it comes at when it comes when it when it comes down to that management of that resource that we all have, but it's all really incredibly finite. Uh, that resource of time. Thank you for that thorough answer, Amy. Is your process or is your feeling similar to Andrew's? Yeah, um, you know, now Andrew's right. It's not. It's the one thing we all have. This we all have twenty four hours in the same day. I have a lot of jobs. I have two younger kids. I have uh, my own, um, you know, stuff to do. Uh, my own family stuff to do. You know. Um, I set word count goals, like here's my word count goal for last week or the year, week before. <laughs> it just adds 2,000 words to every single week. That's all it is, um, or every single day, sorry. So I, I try and write 2,000 a day. I forgive myself if I do less, but, um, and most days I can get it done before 11 when those kids are in school and I don't have student work or, or grading to do or anything like that. I have an extra three hours where like Drew is in the classroom during those three hours. I'm not. So I try and really use it as, as best as I can. You know, I started writing when I was 24. I didn't have kids till I was 33. And like, I look back at that time. I'm like, what was I doing? <laughs> Why didn't I write all the time? Um, but you know, I was doing other stuff, but yeah, you know, I, I agree. It's, it's something I hear a lot of times. Oh, I wish I had the time to write and I'm thinking, you know, I haven't watched television in 17 years. So if you really enjoy your television, fantastic. But don't tell me that that's the reason that you're not writing. I, you know, I can't not write if I don't, if I don't write, I'm not well, I'm not well. So it's, it's part of, it's part of mental health for me. I think, I think Drew would agree. Definitely. And you know, what's funny is I, I keep my writing, numbers my target on post-its too and uh yeah and, and totally and i should have saved the last ones because i'm currently i'm finished with everything so this is like a not writing time for about the last maybe week because i turned in a revision and i finished another novel so i'm really happy so i don't have i throw those numbers away because they the, the post-its pile up but yeah. this is a, a Cracker Barrel post-it about the stuff I needed to do today. Where did you get a Cracker Barrel post-it? Oh, when, you know what? And he, his name's going to come up later. When Greg Neri and I did the um, Southern Festival of Books, and it was in Nashville, Tennessee, and they put Cracker Barrel post-its in our goodie bag. They gave us a moon pie, and they also gave us a bottle of Jim Bean in our goodie bag. Yeah, how's that? Awesome. That, yeah. That's going to be hard to beat, definitely. <laughs> I know. The challenge is on, Iowa. Yeah, yeah. we'll get it. You just wait. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to say is it's great to hear you both talk about that um, time management aspect, because I know as an English teacher, that's one of the things I talk to my kids a lot about. They say, like, oh, I don't have time to read or whatever. Uh, and we talk about, you know, making, like, we make time for what we value and... Yeah. And I know Virginia and I uh, going through uh, the Iowa writing project here. That's uh, something that's stressed a lot is, you know, we make time for what we value. Well, you know, Amy and I are actually, Amy and I are in the 1%. We're one percenters because we actually get 36 hours in a day. But don't tell anybody that. We're <laughs> like, well, you impoverished people. That yes. 24 hours that you can squander away on your impoverished lives. And you know what? And it's funny because Drew wakes up at 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning. I am not a morning person. I had to be at a wedding shower at 11 o'clock this morning. And everybody knew how pissed off I was because they've known me since I was young. And so I get up late and I still managed to do it. Like I, you know, and I do stay up late too, though. I was always a night owl. So 
when I was in like art school, I did most of my like most raucous work at like two or three o'clock in the morning. I can't do that now because I got to take my kids to school. It bumps me out, but I've only got a few more years of that. Okay, ten more years of that, but just, it's going to feel like three, right? Yeah, yeah, it will definitely. Just to shoot back to back to Andrew here. Uh, one of the things that uh, comes up with my students a lot, uh, and my students love both of your uh, both of your guys' books, uh, but specifically to you, Andrew, um, they talk a lot about how relatable uh, your characters are. I'm thinking primarily of like Ryan Dean West in particular. Um, and so I'm curious, do you, does that come from you think uh, having your own kids, uh, being around kids all day, or, or what do you think it is that has allowed you to have that success with uh, that relatability factor? Yeah, I, th I think it's a combination of things. First of all, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a lot of what I write, uh, an awful lot of what I write is drawn from my own experiences. And I continue, and I always go back and reprocess things that I went over as an adolescent. Then also having raised two kids who are now young adults, um, that definitely contributed to it as well. But the interaction that I get every day from the 200 teenagers that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, I think is invaluable uh, as a writer. And, um, and I think that, that all of us who are teachers know this, that, you know, that, that the, real, the real foundational skill, I think, of teaching has nothing to do with discrete knowledge of subject matter, and it has everything to do with being a communicator, being able to both speak to and listen to um, other human beings. And I think that that, you know, the listening thing, I mean, it's something that, it's something that keeps me um, dedicated to that profession as, as an educator. Um, it's the one thing that would be the hardest thing for me to give up uh, is the lack of that day-to-day uh, -day fresh interaction with 200 different kids telling me 200 different stories. It's, it's an amazing thing. As an Iowan, uh, and I, I know Jen obviously is one too, I'm, I'm really partial to Grasshopper Jungle as well. Uh, and I'm so excited that this is being adapted into a movie. Uh, and I was wondering if there's anything you can sort of tell us about that or, or what that process has been like for you in the early stages. Well, you know, every every one of my books that's been optioned for film has gone through a different process. But the one, I mean, the this the story of Grasshopper Jungle it was is the most unique and probably also the most uh, rewarding for me as an artist because it was it was these other great people who were involved in the movie making industry that read the book and loved the book and then came to me and said, "We need to make this film." including the fantastic screenwriter Scott Rosenberg, the producer Matt Tolmack, and then finally the director Edgar Wright. They each, each of them read the book and then reached out to me about it. And so that's, I think that's probably a very unique experience because uh, the other, you know, the other books that I have that are currently under option and in development, you know, they have, they have their own story behind them. But as far as the um, interaction that I have or the input that I have um, with Grasshopper Jungle, it's been tremendous. And um, when Scott finished the screenplay for it, uh, he sent it to both of my agents and they sent it to me 
and we agreed that we would all read it and then we would have this conference call about it and it was just it was universally you know all of us who'd read the screenplay just fell in love with it and we said you know there's there i i mean i as a writer i had no comments for things that needed to changed or things that I was uncomfortable with and neither did either of my other agents and they both told me it was the first time they had ever read a screenplay adaptation that they didn't have issues with so uh, it's a great screenplay and I can't wait for people to actually um, get their hands on this and get their heads wrapped around this film. <laughs> so you're gonna premiere it right here in, in Ealing right right next door Cedar Falls yeah, I mean, you know, if if you watch the kinds of things that Edgar Wright does with his films, I would not be surprised at all if he if he had a you know a screening of it, a premiere of it in Iowa. Not at all. And in fact, we talked about filming it there. Yes, yes, it should be filmed here for sure. This I is an awesome place. So we talked a little bit about the teenage writing and how teenagers kind of inform your work. Um, what do you hope that teenage readers um, take away from your books? Thinking for themselves, thinking for themselves. I mean, I think one of the biggest things, um, I just, just by chance, like the hour before I, I logged on, I was answering fan mail and sometimes fan mail will be like short and easy to answer or questions that are easy to answer. And sometimes they're really, heavy, deep things. And so I saved those two letters to right before I saw you guys. Um, and I think if anything, yeah, thinking for yourself, um, being able to talk about things that aren't allowed to be talked about, usually trauma, experience, things like that. Um, to have, um, you know, a young woman write to me and say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm going through cancer treatments. I have a very rare form of cancer and your book helped me get through radiation. You're like, oh, oh, what do you write back to this? But at the same time, she wrote other things about how her mind was opened about certain things, how she sees art differently, how she sees certain things differently. Um, and that she can, at age, what is she, I think 16, start thinking about her baggage, start thinking about her armor and what, what, is, what she's stuck on herself as a person in order to take it off. Uh, so for me, I mean, really, I, I, wanna, I wanna help teenagers and I wanna help anybody who reads my books because my books are crossover, same as Drew's and we do have a lot of adults reading our books as well. So I think that between um, having people open their minds no matter what age there are, but then having them discuss things, have conversations about important things, um, really important like that's important so for me i think that's why i do it you know I, I explained to one to one writer tonight that the reason i write books is you know why i write books is because we're told constantly at every turn to not talk about our stuff and whatever your stuff may be and that's why i write books because i said to her look i don't know what it's like to go through cancer as a teenager and i'm sure you hear that a lot but i use my words to to write books the bigger ideas that um I don't know, that help us say, yeah, you know, I have cancer and it kind of sucks. And you're allowed to say that. You're not, you don't have to put a smiley face on it, but that's what everybody I think does to most things, like no matter what's happening at home or what's happening in life or whatever. So 
for me, and I had to do that. I had to do that. I was, I lived a life of surface, surface, um, uh, appearances, um, for my, for the sake of my parents, not on my report card. That's for sure. I rebelled in every way I could, but we always still had to look perfect for everyone, even though we were not. And that really bothers me. Um, and I try not to do it with my kids, but for me and my books, yeah. Uh, open minds, bigger ideas, thinking for yourself. In this world, you got to learn how to think for yourself. Because if you start thinking the way the computer tells you to, to think or whatever newscast, your news retainment you're listening to or watching on the television, you're just going to think like other people. So it's, yeah, um, I guess that's the, the main reason. I mean, all, a lot of it's just because I do it. And then, the, I don't know, the cat, when, when Austin asked something about my process, and once you understand my process, I, I it seems that this part comes out no matter, no matter what characters come to talk to me, except that makes sense. Because my characters talk to me. They tell the stories. I don't. Sounds very woo-woo. I know. It's very frustrating as a writer. I know. But, um, but in the end, they tend to make me think about big ideas and make readers think about big ideas for themselves. Figure it out themselves. My characters talk to me, too, and they fell silent a long time ago. So I think I must not be listening and making that space. Because I squander time. I just like make it rain with time all the time. I, I know how to waste it like nobody's business, but when I make time for it, they do come back. And yeah, so. you have to. You have to make the time. And sometimes you can sit there in front of the computer and nothing shows up or, or they just talk BS to you. Like they just sort of, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, so I'm not going to curse. But um, they do. sometimes they just totally crap on about stuff that just isn't, useful but i find that if i write that out it doesn't it's I, they eventually get to something you know i've had the last the book that's coming out next is uh i threw that kid away tossed him in the bin it's like now nope, i'm done with you you're boring you're, you're freaking me out you're not telling me anything important and then i started writing a totally different book and then he showed up in the book i'm like what <laughs> and I'm like this, this doesn't make any sense and then he, he but he finally eventually had something to say i hope i hope speaking of having something to say I Crawl Through It has been one of the books that for me in my classroom has led to some of like the most interesting conversations. <laughs> Good. I have one just last week. We've been in school for like four weeks now. And so I, I teach a senior elective that's uh, independent reading based. So I'm able to conference for, with the kids daily. They're reading for half an hour uh, every day and stuff like that. And so the first time I talked with this girl, um, I was like, oh, she wanted to try something that was a little bit, in her words, out there. And I'm thinking surrealistic, that type of thing. So I, I pointed her in the direction of that book. And she came up to me last week and she's like, I really love this. I'm not sure I get it yet. And I was like, keep reading. Let's talk. Um, so I was wondering if you could, Amy, talk a little bit about, I don't know, that. Uh, is, is that is that something that you're intentionally shooting for or is that like you said just come out naturally or it depends on the book austin so like when i crawl through it i crawl through it came from a, a very um an angry place in my life i'd given up on publishing which is ironic because it's a published book i know um, <laughs> but i'd given up on it the business is very it can be callous it can be um I'm not gonna say shallow that's a rough word uh, but it can be all sorts of things that aren't nice and um and for somebody who thinks like I do, as somebody who writes like I do, you know, it can just be sort of a bummer. So I gave up. I was like, forget it. And it's funny because Drew, Drew will tell you, I mean, we had similar experiences for two different books, um, but I quit. I was like, I'm done. And I actually meant it. And I think I did talk to Drew that night and I was sort of in that time and said, you know, I'm done. 
I, I, I don't care anymore. And then two days after I quit, like for real, I quit. I was done. I sat down at my desk and now comes this invisible helicopter. And I'm like, what's this about? I love it. Let's see what happens. And then like all the stuff came out stuff from my life, stuff from, you know, stuff that, that I found was very important. What I loved about that book, um, if you can love your own books, which I do with that book, um, which is hard to say. It's weird, but it's true. I don't know why. I think I'm humble. I'm German and I grew up in Pennsylvania. I don't know what else to say. We're not allowed to be proud. That's just how it goes. Um, but I do love that book. Uh, one of the things I love about it is I always called it an emotional auger. So you don't really know when I put that little the tip of the auger into you. I'm married to a woodworker for a long time. Um, but I get it in your sternum. Like, get out here. You can't see where I'm pointing, but you know where your sternum is. And then I start to twist it, and you don't know I'm twisting it. And then toward the end of the book, I keep getting – my husband teaches as well. He's an English teacher. And, and so he had a girl come back to him last week and said, why? That's what he said. She finished that book, and she goes, why? And, uh, and he said, look – did you cry at the end? She goes like, yeah, like crazy. And he, and she couldn't figure out why. And, and I think that was the thing about that book. I can't even tell you why, like, but I know that toward the end, I just cranked it in there. And for me, I, I don't know. It was some weird emotional auger of a book that, um, why, where did it come from? It came from me quitting and it came from me wanting to, to, to put my middle fingers up at a lot of things that I was angry at, including some of the subject matter in that book. So, um, and surrealism, I mean, surrealism just shows up because, you know, what is surreal if not being a teenager today or anytime, let's be fair, like shut up, shut up, but answer our questions, but shut up, but don't think this, but shut up, but don't do this. Oh, tell us what you think, but shut up. It's just constant contradictions, right? So for me, surrealism kind of fits teenage life in a huge way. But that's, that's kind of where that book came from. I was angry. And the motivation behind writing it is that I wanted to write something that I wanted to write. Not to say I never did that before. I'm very lucky. And I, you know, it did take me 15 years to get published to write what I wanted to write. But I got to write what, I, what I'd been aiming toward all that time. So for me as a writer, I didn't care how anybody liked that book or not. I really don't care. I get a lot of weird letters about that book. But what, it, what was important to me was that um, it did reach certain readers. Um, and it does definitely start conversation. My eighth grade boys remember, you were like, I'm not sure eighth grade boys can, will they get this? And I'm like, I don't know, but they want to try, you know. And uh, they were like, I totally don't get it, but I can't stop reading. And right. by the time they were done, they're like, I think I know what she was talking about, but I can't explain it. You know, and I'm like, that's good. We just, sometimes we have to be ambiguous and love the mystery. And, and not it, I think, too. You can come back to it years later. I have one grad student at the moment. She's a teacher, and she's, she's read it five times, and her, her end of whatever that class was, but her project at the end was, was the different things she saw reading it four different times. So on each read, she saw a different thing. And that was pretty cool. Uh, she sent me her PowerPoint. I, I, I watched it and it was great. Um, and I thought, wow, I read it a lot more and I didn't catch that. And I didn't see that. And I didn't see that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's nice to write books like that because, look, I, clearly by that time, how many books I had out, I'm not in it for the money. Um, and once you're not in it for them, like, it's not to say I ever got into it for the money, but, you're, you know, clearly not in for it. So why not be in it for what I'm here for? Like, to just blow minds. Yeah. Well, you do.
something I throw out to both of you here because I feel like we kind of hit on uh, on this. Um, I'm, I'm curious what advice the both of you would have for for teachers to even better connect uh, books and reading to our students. Uh, Amy, I, I know you were kind of talking about like that. Uh, I crawled through it, m maybe struck a nerve with that uh, auger to the sternum because of how real. Uh, it, it felt for our audience, uh, who's largely uh, English teachers in the state of Iowa, what are uh, tips or suggestions you, you'd have for us to uh, continue to make the impact that the two of you have definitely uh, helped make? I would say. Drew, you go first. Okay, um, well, I mean, like, I'll just answer as a teacher and not as a writer, but I mean, you know, you know this, I'm just preaching to the choir. I mean, the, if you want to get kids engaged with reading, um, and you're an adult, it requires two things. It requires you to know the kid, and it requires you to know the material that you're suggesting that the kid accesses. And again, there's, there. I mean, like the overprescription of you should be reading a book that fill in the blank. Um, no, I'm sorry. Um, I don't care what your, how good your intentions are. Um, when you uh, when you direct uh, you know these marching orders to a kid, uh, I know as a parent and I know as a student, or I, I'm sorry, I know as a teacher that you're going to be met with resistance, and the resistance is going to turn into not just resistance towards you, but resistance towards that which you're trying to bring the child towards. Um, so, uh, freedom of choice, uh, knowing the kid. Uh, knowing the material, um, those are the those are the real keys because not every kid happens to be looking for what the you know the the dominant um, wisdom tells you kids should be reading right now, and that's a human thing. It just requires human interaction, and there's no substitute for it. I think education is going in the direction of hoping that one that teachers will turn transform into you know iPads with legs um, and, um, and and I see just I see abysmal failure in that uh, in that very prescriptive approach to education because it lacks choice it lacks authenticity and it lacks an understanding of the value of the individual yeah uh, how can what can I say after that I mean <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> yeah. After that, I mean, I just know, like, and the minute you say should, uh, that's that's a big one, Andrew, because I I have a teenage daughter who could be reading all of my books, and she's read several, a few, um, but she doesn't like if I say, oh, you should read this because she's thinking, you know, she's studying the allegory of the cave or something, and I'm like, here, read this one. Um, no, she won't. Like, she won't. Uh, and it's, it is not like, I know this kid, but at the same time, there's probably other books that she'd be more interested in. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think at this point when it comes to, I talk a lot about the static canon, um, because, you know, how many times can you teach farewell to arms and how long are we going to teach it? How long are we going to teach certain things? I saw my kids reading this for this year. I was thrilled to see uh, what Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451, brilliant. But every single book on that list is a, a, a dead white man. Um, and that's cool, like whatevs, that's cool. But at the same time, there are more relevant present day, modern teenage stories on paper. And that's where I think the classroom library comes in. I think it's a big deal to have a great classroom library stocked with uh, 
contemporary books. But I mean, what can I say after what Drew said? He's absolutely right. You got to know the person. You got to know the material. And if you don't know the material, like the, I get that, I get stuck with that a lot. So like, what's the what's the newest? You know, what's the book from this year that you would recommend to everybody? I was like. I didn't read much YA this year. So all I know are the two that I read. So I read a lot of books, but this isn't what I read. So, I, you know, I, I don't know the kid. How can I recommend a book if I don't know the person? I'm not even kid, perfect person. Like, um, but yeah, I can't say much. Now, see, I told you there was nothing I could say after what you said. One of the things I used to do to kind of trick kids, and not in a bad way, but help them discover what they want through choice was... I always had piles of books on the desk. Like I took the top of those um, printer box lids and I just filled them with books and I put them on every pod. And then if I knew like this kid's reading a lot of World War II, I would plant something there knowing that by the end of the week they would find it. And usually they found it within 24 hours and picked it up and asked me about it and started reading. And I started telling them like, I knew you'd want that. So I put it in there. And then I would like switch those. It, it, they didn't even have to get up and look at the shelves. I, I brought the books to the desks for them to find. And I also would like for Tom, Tommy will not read anything I tell him to. I mean, just same. Same. no matter what, what, you know, 14 year olds, that's what they're like. But I will just get it on Audible and plant it there. And then eventually he'll discover it. But Judy Bloom had the best response to this. I, when I saw her at NCTE in Boston, she said, leave the books out, get the new copy, not the old like 70s copy, get the new covers, and then say, I don't think you're ready for these, and walk away. And they will read them within two weeks. And that's what I started doing. You know, I started, you know, saying, I don't think you're ready for this, but just, it's here. And kids just take that as like a bring it. You know, a challenge. Challenge. You know, and they do like challenges. They like holidays, but they also like challenging reading too, you know. We all like holidays. We all have our holiday guilty pleasure reading, but so many teachers don't want to bring books into the classroom. I mean, I taught Macbeth 14 times, and I learned something every time. I, and it, it, to me, I can find relevance in it all the time because I know it that well, but there are so many other things to bring with it. Yeah. To put in conversation with it that are new you know and i think that that's part of the teachers who don't read ya are, are part of the issue that's the one i mean i i'll throw this out when um my daughter was going to a school that she's not going to now it was a private school and um so i'd show up and i didn't tell anybody what i did for a living and but eventually it got around and i had the english teacher the head of the english department come to me and she said uh you know, I don't really believe in young adult literature. Like it's a religion? Actually, that's what I said. I said it's not like fairies, you know, like <laughs> a belief system. They exist. Uh, and, you know, um, and it was, it was a bummer because it meant, it. well, I finally got asked in to speak and then they found I was worth something, at least my, my horror story, my publishing horror story, as, as far as the book, I, I wouldn't call it a horror story. I think 15 years was fine. But being able to say that, look, tenacity, you know, like doing the, doing the thing um, and, and finding that time uh, in the magical 24-hour stipend that we're all given, um, that that was interesting to them, but they still wouldn't read my books. They still didn't have my books in the library. And in fact, I gave them books and I don't know where they went uh, because they just didn't want to um, have anything to do with 
young adult literature. It was, it was not, it was not legit in that school, which was a bummer because of course somebody, like, come on, somebody would have connected with uh, Marbury Lenz. Somebody would have connected with Alex Crow. Somebody would have connected with a million different books in that place. But instead it was all, you know, it was Toni Morrison, who I love, but that's what they were limited to. Which is a shame. You shouldn't limit. I think the idea of education is to the opposite of limit. <laughs> like that's the that's the whole point, right? Thanks for listening to this episode of YA Author Tag Team, presented by the Yo Teach Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, let us know by reaching out to us on Twitter at ICCE underscore board, following our Facebook page, or commenting on our Facebook group. Be sure to bookmark our website, www.iowaenglishteachers.org, and check it out often. That's where you'll be able to find show notes from this episode that include all the pertinent links and info. The podcast is produced by me, Austin Hall. Music for this episode from the Free Music Archive by Lee Rosevere and Broke for Free. A special thank you to Andrew Smith, A.S. King, and Jenny Paulson for their contributions to this episode. Look for the conclusion to our conversation with Andrew Smith and A.S. King soon. There's a lot yet to come, including the book Drew's referring to when he says... And, uh, and, then, and then when I read it, then I decided... I'm going to hate A.S. King forever <laughs> <laughs> because this book was so freaking good. Thanks again, ICTE. Until next time, this has been your host, Austin Hall, for YA Author Tag Team and Yo Teach, the official podcast of the Iowa Council of Teachers of English. <laughs>